Much like how two nuclear bombs ended World War II, capital-crushing central bank policy rate hikes and Russian sanctions were like two nuclear bombs dropped on the economy and the banking system. The shockwave took one year to make its way around the world, and now we're dealing with the fallout. European banks like Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse were very intertwined with Russia and tried to resist cutting ties with Russian business lines, as this would inevitably lead to their failures, which would spread as contagion to the rest of the global banking system. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. This is where you will learn everything about the economics, the philosophy, the financial breakdown, the monetary history, the technology, everything about Bitcoin. The best in Bitcoin made audible. And I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are continuing with part two of is Your Money Safe During the Banking Crisis by Brad Mills, which he just recently changed the title, but for the sake of not confusing everybody, we're going to keep it this current title. But we ran through the first half of this thing in the previous episode, and this will be the remainder of it. And I've decided to, because I saved and wrote down so many notes, I decided it needed a guy's take. It needs its own separate thing where we just kind of break down a lot of the things uh, basically an update on the state of and the potential consequences of the potential paths out of the current banking crisis and kind of the timeline that this might operate on. But I really think Brad Mills has a great, just as a really great finishing uh, a follow through for this article and there's just a lot of great stuff and luckily we were we are starting out right in the middle of this, uh, which is where we will be starting part two. We're actually going to go over, he basically gives a recap of the first part in a very short um, little segment. So it'll be a perfect little kickoff um, as we get into part two. So if you listened to it last week, don't worry, you'll get a quick refresh as we move into part two. Real quick, I just want to say thank you to Swan Bitcoin for the best onboarding and for being the foundation of my Bitcoin stacking for so long. If you're getting into Bitcoin and you haven't checked out Swan, you're doing it wrong. A huge thank you to CoinKite for the cold card and for all of the hardware security devices and also just cool Bitcoin devices in general that they have available. They are the cold storage solution. And lastly, Fold, because if you have to do fiat, you sure as hell better be paid sats to do it. Fold is 1% base sats plus spins on the wheel of sats and gift cards with even more sats back on everything that you do. Links and goodies and discounts and all that great stuff will be right there in the show notes for you. If you're checking them out, please use those links. Don't let discounts sit on the table and don't let free sats go to waste. With that, let's get into today's article. Part 2 of Is Your Money Safe During the Banking Crisis by Brad Mills. Starting in on the section titled. A Quick Review So Far. At this point, I'd like to recap and add some more factors to the discussion so we can continue understanding why many banks are technically insolvent and starting to fail. 1. Central bankers held interest rates too low and signaled to everyone, including the banks, that they will continue to keep rates low to avoid deflation, promoting the flawed logic of inflation is transitory and deflation is bad. 2. Banks do not operate on a reserve system anymore. Instead, they continually create debt money through credit issuance and are encouraged to hold high-quality liquid assets, such as government bonds and mortgage-backed securities, to protect against bank runs in case everyone discovers that there are not adequate reserves for everyone to get their money out. 3. Governments inflated the money supply with massive stimulus and deficit spending. Central banks enabled the massive deficit spending with QE. 4. QE by itself did not directly add new money to the system. 
even though the central banks created the reserves from nothing, because banks used existing money, our deposits, to buy the bonds which they then sold to the central banks. 5. The G7 made a difficult decision to drop a nuclear bomb on the financial system by sanctioning Russia, putting contagion pressure on European and other Western banks. And 6. Central banks started raising rates faster than they ever have before in history to combat inflation, deflating the bond bubble and causing banks to become insolvent. As Polyev mentioned in his rebuke of QE, central banks could realize losses if they are forced to sell bonds. However, a fair rebuttal to this argument is that central banks don't have to sell their bonds. They will likely hold them for years or decades to maturity and not realize any losses in dollar terms because they can create the dollars. This is why they claim that the bonds are risk-free. While it's true that they are risk-free when denominated in the currency, they are not risk-free when measured in purchasing power. Unlike central banks, regular banks are in a precarious position where they have to sell underwater bonds as depositors withdraw record amounts of money. Due to this exodus from the banking system, they are no longer able to hide the problem with accounting tricks. The depositor runs are forcing banks to realize the massive losses that were hidden with held to maturity or HTM accounting rather than fair value accounting of their underwater bond portfolios. This accounting trick only worked as long as depositors didn't withdraw their funds. Now that there are record withdrawals happening, as demonstrated in the chart below, it is exposing the insolvency and causing banks to fail. Why are people withdrawing their money at historic rates? There are two main reasons why depositors are withdrawing their money. Firstly, as depositors lose confidence in their banks, it causes them to move their money to a bank that they trust more. Secondly, high interest rates are causing depositors to wire their money out of their accounts to seek higher yield in money market funds, bonds, guaranteed investment contracts, and certificates of deposit, and other investment vehicles. Maybe you haven't thought about how unfair this is but many people are realizing that the banks and central banks are taking advantage of them. Let's say you've been depositing and saving money at a big bank, and the big bank gives you a savings rate of roughly 0%. The big bank took your money and bought government debt during QE and received central bank reserves, which it parks at the central bank and now gets paid about 5%. People are waking up to how unfair this is, and they are wiring their savings out of their banks and putting it into investments and alternative stores of value like gold, real estate, and Bitcoin. In an age of digital money, bank runs in the 2020s don't look like they did in the 1920s. Instead of lineups around the corner, now we have digital bank runs. In 2022, a record $600 billion in deposits were withdrawn from U.S. banks. TXMC, a monetary historian and market analyst, has suggested that a more fair way to visualize the amount of withdrawals is by looking at the percent drawdown in bank deposits, which adjusts for the increase in the money supply over time. Either way you choose to look at the data, there is a historically significant amount of withdrawals happening from bank accounts. Blaming COVID is inaccurate. Government bonds are losing value. The banks are backing only a fraction of deposits by holding some of their reserves in HQLAs like U.S. Treasuries, which are supposed to be easily converted to dollars. Colloquially, this is known as, quote, money good. U.S. Treasuries are thought of as the safest collateral in the world. The U.S. bond market has historically been deeply liquid, and U.S. bonds are considered to be the world reserve asset alongside the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. However, the cracks started to appear in the foundation of the financial system in 2019, before the pandemic was used as an impetus to restart QE. In 2019, the Federal Reserve tried to slowly raise interest rates and stopped doing QE. Since we operate on a debt-based money system where our economies are addicted to stimulus, when the central bankers 
took away the punch bowl by stopping QE and started to slowly raise rates, the interbank lending markets froze up. Overnight, bank-to-bank borrow rates massively shot up to more than 10%. This liquidity freeze-up is similar to what started the 2008 financial crisis. So the Federal Reserve immediately intervened in the interbank lending markets and started doing a stealth form of bank bailouts the year before anyone had even heard of COVID-19. Many were speculating at this time in 2019 that Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank were functionally insolvent and that they and many other banks would have failed much sooner had the central banks not intervened in 2019 and 2020 with massive bailouts in the interbank lending markets, the corporate bond markets, and the U.S. Treasuries market. Since cracks have started to show in the U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities or MBS markets in 2019, 2020, and 2021, with no-bid auctions, rate volatility, and growing illiquidity, the central banks are doing whatever they can to prevent banks from having to add sell pressure to the U.S. Treasuries markets. With record outflows from depositors, banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse were forced to start selling their bonds, realizing the losses on their underwater bond portfolios and going insolvent. These issues in the banking system and bond markets were not caused by COVID-19, and the trend of bank failures is clearly not over, as another large U.S. bank, First Republic Bank, has been taken over by the FDIC and sold to J.P. Morgan. Added Pressures from Europe and Russian Sanctions Almost precisely one year before Silvergate Bank failed in the U.S., kicking off a wave of bank failures, I wrote about how the Russia sanctions were a nuclear bomb that went off in the banking system and expected to see a wave of bank failures come in the wake of it. Much like how two nuclear bombs ended World War II, capital-crushing central bank policy rate hikes and Russian sanctions were like two nuclear bombs dropped on the economy and the banking system. The shockwave took one year to make its way around the world, and now we're dealing with the fallout. European banks like Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse were very intertwined with Russia and tried to resist cutting ties with Russian business lines as this would inevitably lead to their failures, which would spread as contagion to the rest of the global banking system. When you want to get an idea of the health of a bank, you can look at a few things, such as SET1, LCR, the share price, and credit default swaps, or CDSs. We already covered SET1 and LCR earlier, and a bank's share price dropping is a pretty obvious sign that market participants have found something concerning. So let's discuss credit default swaps. Credit default swaps are a form of insurance against debt defaults and insolvency for large institutional traders and investors to hedge the risk of owning the debt of an entity. People watch the CDS market to get another signal of what sophisticated investors think the likelihood of an entity defaulting is. In July 2021, and again in September 2022, Canadian bond trader and 35-year risk manager Greg Foss publicly warned of the incredibly alarming rise in the price of CDS insurance against Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. Tweet from Greg Foss. Houston, we have a problem. Market cap of CS is now a rounding error. 35x leverage. This and Deutsche Bank, a canary in the coal mine. CDS on Credit Suisse, now at global financial crisis highs. Credit Suisse had exposure to some smaller funds that went insolvent in 2021, which restarted its troubles and speculations around its insolvency. After the Russian sanctions and rate hikes added even more pressure and fear, Credit Suisse experienced an $88 billion bank run through the summer and fall of 2022. Another $69 billion was withdrawn in quarter one of 23, and fears around its insolvency grew, which the CDS market showed. As the bank started liquidating its bonds at a loss, no longer able to hide its insolvency with held-to-maturity accounting, a forced takeover by UBS Bank with a backstop from the Swiss government occurred. Switzerland has a GDP of only $800 billion, 
So many are starting to worry about the credibility of the Swiss National Bank backstop, as well as the solvency of UBS. You can see this in the rising cost of insurance against a UBS default in the CDS market. The risk did not go away when Credit Suisse failed. It transferred to UBS. How bad is this compared to previous bank failures? Three of the largest bank failures in U.S. history have just happened. Silicon Valley Bank at $209 billion, Signature Bank at $118 billion, and First Republic Bank at $229 billion. For reference, the largest bank failure in U.S. history was Washington Mutual at $307 billion in 2008. Hundreds of U.S. banks would technically be insolvent if it weren't for HTM accounting or held to maturity, in a similar position as the banks that have failed already. Time will tell if banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate were the riskiest banks or just the first banks to fail. The failure of these large banks led to emergency action by the Federal Reserve, starting up a new round of bailouts and lending programs designed to prevent the banks from having to realize the losses on their U.S. treasuries. Instead of having to sell their HQLA government bond portfolios and realizing losses to meet withdrawals, they can now borrow money from the Federal Reserve against their bond portfolios at the held-to-maturity value rather than the actual market value. Essentially, central planners intervened with the free market pricing mechanism, rescuing banks once again by allowing them to mark up the value of their bond portfolios to their held-to-maturity values rather than just borrow freshly printed Fed money, allowing them to borrow even more money than what the bonds are worth. Typically, banks avoid borrowing from the Fed via the discount window, as there is a stigma attached to the institutions who do so. Remember, the colloquial term is that the Fed is the lender of last resort. Since it's public who is borrowing from the Fed as a last resort, that's interpreted as a sign of weakness by the market. But when there's systemic risk in the system, the stigma of borrowing from the Fed seems to be removed. Strangely, the Federal Reserve is actually charging banks a pretty high interest rate. In this scenario, the Federal Reserve has gone from the lender of last resort to the loan shark of last resort for small and medium-sized banks, paying about 5% for Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP funding, or borrowing at the Fed's discount window. They call this program BTFP and I look at it like a living will for the U.S. banking system. What the BTFP does to slow the banking crisis. The Fed's BTFP does two things. Firstly, it hopes to stop the banking crisis by giving banks more time to process withdrawals, stopping panic from spreading as customers return to a state of complacency with their deposits. It is buying time. The longer this draws out, the more they can control the narrative. Secondly, if that fails, and this really is the resolution of the 2008 crisis, where we see sustained bank runs and systemic bank insolvencies, the BTFP helps reduce the pressure on the FDIC if it has to resolve hundreds of small and medium bank failures. As we've learned so far, there is not enough demand in the free market to buy the bonds that the government is trying to sell. So the central bank has to buy the bonds to fund government deficit spending and QE. There is upwards of $2 trillion in bonds held by hundreds of small and medium-sized banks. If these banks have to sell these bonds into the market, that will freeze up the bond market, which might cause a loss of confidence in the money itself, which is much worse than a loss of confidence in banks. The Fed's BTFP allows them to create up to $2 trillion and lend it to these banks, taking their underwater bonds off the market and putting some 500 small and medium-sized U.S. banks into debt to the Fed. If these banks fail, the Federal Reserve can absorb the bond collateral onto its balance sheet without it looking like another round of QE and bailouts as the banks have become debtors to the Fed. 
these money-printing, bank-lending schemes are all about buying time and stopping fear from spreading in both the banking system and the bond market themselves. Is this a widespread banking crisis? If enough customers try to withdraw their money from banks, the banks will go insolvent. Because not only are the dollars printed from nothing, but the banks do not even have the dollars anymore. In fact, the money in your bank account is not even your money. It's actually a liability on the bank's balance sheet. This is why bank bail-in provisions were written into law post-Great Financial Crisis. If they cannot prevent the fear from spreading and we see a systemic failure, banks can legally do bail-ins and haircuts above the CDIC-FDIC limits, like we saw in Greece and Cyprus a decade ago. The FDIC and the Fed knew the banks were in trouble last year. They started holding meetings and trying to come up with rule changes to figure out how to resolve large bank failures. They know FDIC insurance is a fairy tale designed to keep depositors placated, and that if large banks start to fail, the FDIC fund is laughably undercapitalized to resolve that situation. They discussed doing haircuts and bank bail-ins, as well as disclosing information on the true risks in the banking system to the public in advance of a systemic event. Some recent comments from FDIC regulators on bank bail-ins from November 2022. Quote, it's important that people understand they can be bailed in. You don't want a huge run on the institutions, but there are going to be runs, and it could be an early warning signal to the FDIC and the primary regulators. And if there's significant long-term debt, you can contemplate a bail-in type exit for these institutions, where you're turning the institution over to its creditors. There does not seem to be the political will to allow bail-ins to happen yet. As we saw just a couple of months after this FDIC meeting, when banks actually started to fail, the Silicon Valley billionaires were bailed out instantly and all deposits were guaranteed. The $250,000 FDIC limit was essentially thrown out the window immediately. While the legal framework is in place, bail-ins seem to be a last resort tool at the bottom of the toolbox. You can think of bail-ins like lockdowns, they will only go with that option when they are about to completely lose control. In February of 2020, the idea of schools and public buildings being shut down and everyone being forced to stay at home was thought to be hyperbolic and ridiculous. FDIC and CDIC unable to handle the failures of large banks. In fact, when you look at the set one ratios of Canadian banks, it does not look great. Silicon Valley Bank failed with a set one ratio of 14%, and Credit Suisse failed with a set one ratio of 15%, which is better than the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CBIC, or Scotiabank, which are all under 13%, or 12.6%, 11.7%, and 11.5%, respectively. The risk was not flushed out of the system after the 2008 financial crisis. They socialized the losses and privatized the gains with bailouts and stimulus, increasing wealth inequality, damaging the purchasing power of your savings, and kicking the can down the road as far as they could. The can is at our feet again. We are at a fork in the road. There's not enough capital buffer in the banking system to absorb the massive losses in these bond markets. Preston Pish, host of the Investors Podcast, recently tweeted, quote, The total capital buffer in the U.S. banking system is $2.2 trillion, while unrealized losses are between $1.7 and $2 trillion. If banks had to liquidate their bond and loan portfolios, they'd lose 77-91% to of their capital cushion, highlighting the fragility of most banks. 186 U.S. banks are in distress. The idea that the CDIC or FDIC insurance can cover the losses from a systemic failure is a fantasy. The FDIC couldn't handle even the first bank failure in 2023, 
and had to tag in the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve to backstop depositors, as 97% of the deposits of that bank were those millionaires and billionaires, evidenced by the fact that they were above the $250,000 deposit insurance limit. They decided to rescue all depositors instead of applying haircuts or bail-ins because, understandably, they felt like it would lead to system-wide panic and full-on bank run, cascading to an unstoppable banking crisis like we saw in the 1920s, rather than the one in 2008. There was also a real, legitimate issue of many Silicon Valley companies being unable to meet payrolls on the following Monday and what that would do to the economy, which is overly dependent on tech companies. Tech companies drive stock market performance. If you look at the stock performance of the top 5 or 10 tech companies and then look at the other 490 companies in the S&P 500, the economic outlook would look a lot worse. Imagine what would happen to the U.S. stock market, which has been artificially inflated to record high prices via money printing and low interest rates, if Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and all of the non-profitable but public tech companies lost tens of billions of dollars to bail-ins and couldn't meet payroll. The choices facing the FDIC, U.S. Treasury, and Federal Reserve are not easy ones. There are decades of policy mistakes and bipartisan political blundering that brought us here. So, is the 250000 FDIC limit just a fantasy if all deposits of the Silicon Valley elite were backstopped? Did the government just tell us that it will socialize all money in the banking system with this action? Or is it just going to pick winners and losers as more banks start to fail and eventually the bail-ins start? Foss has pointed out that even with all of the bailouts, emergency lending programs, and confidence games that the Fed, U.S. Treasury, and FDIC are playing, soon the interest rate risk might spill over to credit risk, which will be even worse for banks. The FDIC was formed in the 1930s, when the United States was still on a somewhat sound monetary standard. It was a way to provide confidence to depositors in the U.S. banking system who had lost trust in the banks. Today, the FDIC fund only has around $100 billion, which is lower than the mandated amount. Buffett has more money than the FDIC fund does. As the monetary system transitioned from sound money to credit money and the supply of money expanded rapidly, the idea of FDIC insurance is more of an illusion Another confidence game. We are supposed to believe that this FDIC insurance is financed by fees that banks pay on deposits. However, as we've seen with the recent bank failures and in previous periods of financial crisis, such as the savings and loan crisis in the 80s and 90s and during the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, the FDIC is too big to fail and it will also get bailed out. They will do whatever they have to in order to prevent people from peeking behind the money curtain to see how things really operate. So what does all of this mean? One thing is for certain. All of this central planning and interference in the free market to prevent the risk from flushing out of the system has a cost. Wealth inequality is going to keep rising, and your money is going to continue to lose purchasing power over time probably at an accelerated rate. I believe that there are really only three ways that this can be resolved. 1. No can kick, leading to deflation and falling prices. Why would we see this? Well, the G8 central bankers are all trying to fight inflation at the same time as they are trying to prevent a banking sector meltdown, which requires them to keep raising rates and not doing any more blatant QE, although in Canada we raised first and have since put a pause on raising rates. Another reason why this scenario is plausible is the looming debt ceiling. There's a statutory cap on the amount of debt the U.S. government can have, and it will need to be legally raised again before another massive round of stimulus can happen. In 1939, U.S. Congress passed the initial Public Debt Act, which established limits on the aggregate U.S. debt levels. 
The debt ceiling has been raised 98 times since. Although sometimes this becomes a partisan battle if an opposing party controls the presidency, House, or Senate. In the long arc of history, it really doesn't matter who's in power. They eventually raise the debt ceiling and print. However, this debt ceiling deadlock can cause problems in the short term, and we're potentially facing that scenario now where the Republican-controlled House does not want the Democratic president to issue more debt coming up to an election year. This is deflationary because it effectively shrinks the money supply and would lead to a continuing decline in bonds and stocks. In the no-can-kick scenario, we would see more banks fail and we could potentially even see the extreme conditions required to force bail-ins where depositors start to take haircuts. Real estate would crash in this deflationary spiral, erasing the phantom wealth that most people feel when they borrow against their retirement accounts and real estate portfolios that have grown rapidly in value during the bubble. This could lead to governments being unable to run massive deficits, as there would be no net new buyers for bonds, and confidence would be lost in government treasuries as the safest place to protect wealth. 2. Can kicked too hard, leading to hyperinflation. This scenario is the least likely to happen in the US or Canada. It's extremely unlikely, yet worth discussing, as it would require massive policy errors. In this scenario, we see some exogenous event such as a once-in-a-generation pandemic or a coronal mass ejection, CME, similar to the Carrington event, perhaps a nuclear war or an unstoppable rogue AI internet virus, which causes an acceleration of existing risks in the system. Some people call these hard-to-predict financial shocks black swan events. If we get a significant black swan event that accelerates the current banking crisis, we could see a sudden collapse of hundreds of banks as global stock markets rapidly crash and bond markets lock up, similarly to what we saw in 2008 or in March of 2020. A real estate market correction could also accelerate to a crash, causing public outcry for policymakers and central bankers to once again lower interest rates and rescue the economy. Emergency measures would be taken, similar to what we saw in the aftermath of COVID-19. However, this time we would likely see 1930s-style price-fixing, capital controls, and much more massive bailouts by the government and central banks. Only if they print obscene amounts of money in response to the crisis do we start to enter hyperinflation territory. Hyperinflation is defined as rapid monetary inflation causing prices to increase at 50% month over month. Oftentimes, when people use the term hyperinflation, they don't actually realize what they are saying, and they can sound hyperbolic to someone who understands the dictionary definition of the word. Policymakers would have to make all the wrong choices and not have learned anything from history to cause a hyperinflationary collapse. It's a very unlikely scenario. 3. Can kicked in status quo with inflation. Bob isn't a fold user. He has a normal old debit card. Guy is a fold user. He's been using the fold debit card for a long time. When Bob goes out and spends $200 on groceries, he just loses $200. When Guy spends $200 on groceries, he gets $2 worth of Bitcoin automatically and 20 spins for additional Bitcoin on the wheel of sats. When Bob buys something on Amazon, he gets nothing back. When Guy buys something on Amazon, he uses Amazon gift cards through the Fold app for 2.5% back. When Bob orders some food in to be delivered, yet again, he gets no extra sats. When Guy orders Uber Eats, he gets 3% back on the gift card. Or he uses DoorDash that has 7% sats back because he has the Fold card. Bob is sad. He gets no fun spin the sats wheel. He gets no sats back on his groceries, on his bills. He just pays for those things. While Guy has nearly 22 million sats just because he stopped using his boring, sad bank debit card and switched to the fold card. Don't be sad like Bob. Be glad like Guy. And best of all, you'll get 50,000 sats just for trying it out. 
50,000 sats just for opening the door and checking out the fold card. If you go to bitcoinaudible.com fold, that link will be oh so conveniently placed right in the description of this episode. I hope that you have a happier day with more sats. With that, let's get back into the read. 3. Can Kicked in Status Quo with Inflation This is the most likely scenario. There's no political will to see deposits start taking haircuts, and nobody seems to want to pull the lever to be responsible for a recession. With a status quo can kick after the debt ceiling is raised, we get continued waves of higher inflation with interest rates held lower. The bond markets continue getting propped up by the central banks as QE restarts and the Fed's balance sheet expands by upwards of $10 trillion to $20 trillion. This is where we see Ponzi finance starting to become more obvious to most people as the share of the United States debt owned by the Fed crosses 50%. I'm not sure whether it will be able to fight the free market forces of higher interest rates, but it will try to artificially drop rates as close to zero as it can get in order to finance the massive and growing debt of the public and private sectors as inflation rises and we continue in a higher inflation environment. This creates another crisis in about 10 years. Since banks are insolvent in any of these scenarios, we may still see hundreds of bank failures, which will lead to further centralization of the banking system. We will likely see the continued trend of banking Canadianization in the U.S., where 500 to 1,000 small and medium banks fail and get absorbed by larger banks. The FDIC cannot resolve this many banks, which is why the Fed is acting as the loan shark of last resort. The Fed absorbs up to $2 trillion of treasuries from the insolvent banks as they default on their loans from the Fed. How do you protect yourself? Diversification out of dollar savings and into more scarce assets is wise. Global index funds, gold, farmland, Bitcoin, etc., are all attractive options to protect and grow your purchasing power. The response to the crisis is likely going to be more of the same, printing money and bailouts. The purchasing power of the dollar will continue to decline against scarce assets like gold and Bitcoin. Most people reading this will not have enough money to invest into something like farmland, and while dollar cost averaging into index funds has historically been a great bet, it has the same counterparty risks to a banking system collapse and capital controls as keeping money in the bank does. Compared to gold, Bitcoin is the fastest horse in the race, and it is likely to increase in purchasing power faster than gold until it gets to gold parity, likely within 10 years. For reference, the price of one Bitcoin would have to increase by about 24 times to $678,125 per Bitcoin in order for it to have the same market cap as gold. As Bitcoin gains relevance as a post-trust world reserve asset and digital currency for the internet, it could rise in value significantly. On Bitcoin's Volatility If you are a wealthy investor who is nervous about Bitcoin's historical volatility, even having a conservative allocation, like 5% of your net worth, to Bitcoin as an insurance plan is still a wise strategy. If your Bitcoin drops significantly in value, or if you lose conviction and sell it in a drawdown, it won't materially affect your life. However, if Bitcoin does what many of us expect it will do over the next five to eight years, a 5% allocation to Bitcoin could provide outsized returns. If you're the average Canadian who doesn't have a significant net worth and lives paycheck to paycheck, saving a larger portion of every check in Bitcoin with a five to 10 year time frame could change your life significantly. It did mine. As a bootstrapped internet entrepreneur with no investing experience, I learned about money, the banking system, and diversified investment strategies over the last 15 years managing my own wealth. I started with a small allocation to Bitcoin in 2011, 
and even though I've made many mistakes along the way during my School of Hard Knocks education, the small Bitcoin allocation has become the majority of my net worth. I still hold other assets like gold, index funds, real estate, and cash. I've held Bitcoin through many volatile drops of 50 to 80%, and I'm still buying Bitcoin today with free cash flow. Always expect the price of Bitcoin to drop by at least 50% from where you bought it. Volatility is part of Bitcoin's story as it bootstraps its way to become a global store of value. It's imperative that you think about Bitcoin as a long-term savings play, not a trade. There is a $60 trillion wealth transfer coming from the silent generation and boomers to the younger generations. Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z all prefer Bitcoin over stocks, gold, and cash. Bitcoin has a credibly scarce, disinflationary supply cap of 21 million, enforced by math, auditable by anyone, and resistant to change by central planners, insiders, or governments. With an ever-increasing demand for BTC by younger, digital native generations in their high-earning years, who will soon see a massive wealth transfer, the growth outlook for Bitcoin is likely to only keep rising. Also, it's worth noting that Bitcoin buyers typically have very high conviction. You can see in the data that the majority of Bitcoin holders understand what they are buying, and they are willing to hold and even buy more through large drawdowns. When the price of Bitcoin peaked in 2021 and went through a bear market in 2022, dropping more than 70% from the high, the long-term holders actually increased their positions. This is because Bitcoin savers use a strategy known as dollar cost averaging or DCAing. Bitcoin educators and influencers typically advocate a DCA strategy to avoid the follies of trying to time the market and become a trader. Saving trumps trading in 90% of cases. Should I buy Bitcoin or one of the other cryptos? A common misconception about Bitcoin is that it is the same as crypto. If I were to stress anything that you could take away from this, it's that Bitcoin is not the same as crypto. Most people would do well if they just ignored crypto and learned as much as they could about Bitcoin. The Pareto Principle, also known as the 80-20 rule, applies to Bitcoin. My advice to most of my friends and family members who ask me about other coins to buy is this. You will achieve 80% of the results of active crypto traders with 20% of the effort if you simply save in and learn about Bitcoin, ignore crypto, and hold your Bitcoin for 10 years. At this point, most of the over 1 million crypto tokens are actually some variation of a Ponzi scheme, and many of them have been exploding over the last two years because they have no value aside from the greater fool theory. Not all of them are Ponzi's. Some of them are just pump-and-dump meme investments, risky bets, or even would-be next Bitcoin competitors. A small percentage of them might even have some legitimate value in the future. Perhaps you've seen the top 25 or 50 crypto tokens and thought you should buy ETH, BNB, or XRP to diversify into crypto as a whole rather than just simply save in Bitcoin. In this case, I strongly advise you to remember the Pareto Principle and learn more about Bitcoin. You should do the work to understand why Bitcoin is valuable before you try to understand any of the cryptocurrency tickers. In the significant majority of cases, whether it's Ethereum, Solana, Dogecoin, or an NFT from your favorite influencer, buying a crypto token is more like VC investing, buying penny stocks, forex trading, gambling, or other forms of speculation. Bitcoin is saving. Crypto is speculation. Speculators can make money, but unless you want to be glued to charts, consuming crypto content for 80 hours a week while also learning how to be a professional portfolio and risk manager, you probably won't come out ahead. If you wouldn't find yourself on our Wall Street bets looking for the next YOLO bet on some meme stock, then don't bother learning about Ethereum, DeFi, Web3, NFTs, or DGEN crypto trading schemes. If you would find yourself on our Wall Street bets looking for the next get-rich-quick bet, do yourself a favor and do not drink the crypto Kool-Aid. There is no such thing as the next Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. The reality of trying to outperform Bitcoin with altcoins. 
The majority of crypto traders will never get back to their BTC high watermark. The only way to beat Bitcoin long term is 1. Either give your money to or be an exceptional professional trader with clearly defined trading rules and execute your trading rules emotionlessly. The majority of traders lose. 2. Get lucky and get out. If someone was lucky enough to buy a meme coin that rose 100 times in its value in a bubble, they likely will go back into the casino and give the majority of it back in the bear market. 3. Be an insider. Most successful people in crypto have gone out on the moral risk curve and exploited their reputations and insider access. They get paid to promote coins, launch their own coins, or get into pre-sales. All of these strategies allow insiders to trade their reputations for profits, getting coins for free or extremely cheap in order to dump them on retail at elevated prices. Even most insiders and venture capitalists won't get this right, as oftentimes they also drink the Kool-Aid, stay in the casino for too long, and over a long enough time frame, they become bag holders as well. Of course, you will see people cherry-pick outlier coins or time frames and say things like, if you bought and held X coin in Y time frame, you would have outperformed Bitcoin. However, these people always leave out the very relevant truth that crypto investors don't just buy and hold. They deploy into and incur significant losses in the mostly fraudulent markets of the Ethereum and crypto Web3 and DeFi ecosystem. To recap, there are two schools of advice givers you'll come across in crypto. One, Bitcoiners. They advocate a simple buy and hold strategy to save in Bitcoin over long time frames, like I'm advocating for right now. And two, crypto investors. They advocate for going out on the risk curve, spreading your bets and allocating to the meat grinder of rug pulls, yield schemes, exploits, gas wars, front running, sandwich attacks, and exchange hacks. A buy and hold Bitcoin savings strategy is the best for the majority of people as BTC outperforms the overwhelming majority of crypto coins over long time frames. Advice for Bitcoin haters If you're one of those people who are against Bitcoin because it's digital, or for some other reason, then it's going to be a rough ride for you unless you protect yourself properly with other forms of scarce assets. Simply pulling cash out of the bank is not going to solve the problem because your cash is still subject to the same debasement as digital money in the bank. Having healthy skepticism around Bitcoin is important, but it's imperative that you do the work. Don't just write it off because you have some misconceptions about it or because you think you missed the boat. Everyone should seek to learn from ethical Bitcoin educators, not crypto traders or blockchain digital snake oil salesmen. Learn how to use Bitcoin as a shield against continued inflation of the money supply, which debases your savings and erodes your purchasing power. Here are my favorite resources to recommend you learn more about Bitcoin. Preston Pish's Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast for Bitcoin and financial market content. Guy Swan's Bitcoin Audible website, where he reads the best Bitcoin articles. Michael Saylor's Hope.com for video interviews and articles. Matthew Crater's Bitcoin University for Bitcoin and investing educational videos. And BTC Sessions YouTube channel for Bitcoin walkthroughs and tutorials. This is a guest post by Brad Mills. Opinions expressed are entirely their own and do not necessarily reflect those of BTC Incorporated or Bitcoin Magazine. All right. And that wraps up Brad Mills' amazing piece on BitcoinMagazine.com. All right, now I'm going to do, I want to do a guy's take uh, separate because I've just got, I saved way too many notes um, at this point to combine this into this episode. So uh, we will have a guy's take tomorrow before jumping into another read. And, uh, and I think it ropes in a couple of other things that I want to talk about because I really want to expand on a couple of things that Brad says in this piece that um, one in particular that I kind of disagree with, or at least I want to kind of lay out two different scenarios. Um, and then one that one section that he gets into, like just basically a paragraph that I know is going to be 
a 20 minute conversation. So it just deserves its own episode and to kind of go over what I think in, in reference to what Brad lays out here um, is what I think the, the likely act, the likely course taken will be. Um, and also I want to kind of reiterate what he talks about with hyperinflation being uh, not the, at least not the short to midterm result, but the sort of business as usual third option uh, being the most likely outcome. And I want to also give like a couple of different potential scenarios or potential branches of those courses or, the, or those paths in tomorrow's episode. So a uh, huge thank you to Brad for writing this. Uh, like I said, it's a really, really good piece. And I might also do a, a, a full-on read of this one, like just have this available so that you don't have to listen to the individual episodes if you want to come back to it. Um, this will also be a great one to reference in a year or two as the banking crisis really you know, kicks into gear or unfolds. Um, in a major way, because I do think we are still just starting this. And I think what they continue to do is buy time. So with that, we'll go ahead and shut this one down. A uh, huge thank you to CoinKite um, and the cold card and the taps on this, just all of the Bitcoin hardware devices um, for being reliable and uh, just being a trusted Bitcoin only source for security for Bitcoin hardware. Um, and then Fold. The sats back on everything debit card. I'm getting really, really close to 22 million sats now. And all of the stuff that I bought for my AI machine, for AI Unchained, uh, that whole computer was 2.5 and or 3% back uh, cash back or sats back on Amazon gift cards. Telling you that's some serious stacking. And lastly, Swan Bitcoin for just being the backbone of my Bitcoin accumulation for a very, very long time now and for being an awesome team of Bitcoiners who are just pure signal. Um, there is no easier place to get onboarded to learn about Bitcoin than Swan. Check them all out. Links will be in the show notes. And thank you guys so much for listening. A thank you and shout out to the Audionauts that I do not mention enough on here. Um, it is great hanging out with you guys and uh and y'all have also been a a great help actually with a lot of the ai stuff and i'm glad that you guys are excited about it so stay tuned on all fronts uh don't forget to follow ai unchained follow bitcoin audible and even shitcoin insider there may not be much there but it is never truly dead and i will catch you guys on the next episode of bitcoin audible and until then everybody take it easy guys What are the odds that people will make smart decisions about money if they don't need to make smart decisions, if they can get rich making dumb decisions? The incentives on Wall Street were all wrong. They're still all wrong. Michael Lewis, The Big Short.